0: I find that my own reflections and my own practice often goes somewhat in circles rather than in a straight line. And I often find that I return again and again to some of the very foundational teachings that I began with only to kind of rediscover um, new depths, new possibilities within some of those foundational teachings. So the first teaching I was ever given as a reflection was on the preciousness of human life. And although this is a teaching that is, you know, perhaps most particularly emphasized in the Tibetan tradition, it is, I feel, a, a teaching that runs through all of the different schools of Buddha, Dharma. So I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver called Messenger. This is my work is loving the world, here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness, here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums, here the clam deep in the speckled sand, are my boots old, is my coat torn, am I no longer young and still not half perfect, Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture, and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here. Which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart, and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. To keep our mind on what matters. I think this, this koan, this question, is a reflection which is really, really important in the beginning of a retreat. Because this reflection on what it even means to keep our mind on what matters is really a reflection or a question about why we're here, what we're doing here, what really is at the heart of our practice, What is our aspiration? What are the motivations and the intentions that bring us back time and time again to our cushion or to our walking path? I'm sure all of you have discovered today that when we begin a retreat, we soon encounter the reality that our life has followed us onto the cushion and into our walking paths. All the issues and concerns that have occupied us in our life, they unfortunately are just, they just don't magically disappear because we changed our address. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our mind and our body are our companions and all the things a mind can do in our life, it will do on a retreat And you've probably discovered just through the way that your thoughts have gone today that actually many, many things matter to us. Our families, our work, our relationships, our likes, our dislikes, our preferences, all the things that we struggle with or dwell upon, all our hopes and delights. It's what the Buddha called the 10,000 joys, and the 10,000 sorrows of every human life. And in this swirling vortex of so many thoughts that are calling for our attention, it's actually not really that easy to keep in mind what really matters, or perhaps even to sense what really matters. Yet in truth, this is actually what we're asked to do, And a retreat is really an opportunity to discover or to rediscover what we most deeply value. It's a question of remembering. And we all start in the same place. You know, we all start by taking our seat, by finding our feet. And then sometimes we just begin to remember that in this Changing and uncertain and unpredictable life that what most is of most enduring value, what is too important to forget, is about really what it means to be alive. A friend of mine, she invited uh, Narayan and I to her 60th birthday party, and this was in a really quite small, a pretty conventional town in Massachusetts and many of the birthday guests were were just local folks, you know, you know, wall builders and plumbers and, you know, just ordinary people. And it started out as really a kind of, you know, kind of normal birthday party, you know, where Mm People you know, had a glass of wine and something nice to eat, and you know, <laughs> chatted about this and that. And then, and then everybody was invited to go into this other room where she had all these tables set up with the chairs, you know, and, and in front of every chair, <clears throat> there was a piece of slate on the table and a piece of chalk. And the invitation was to design your own tombstone. which is, I think, kind of an unusual kind of <laughs> birthday party. Um, but I, it struck me, it really struck me, and it, it really struck me what it would be like to begin a retreat that way. You know, if you came into the hall and there was a piece of slate in front of your cushion, and, and that was our first exercise, that we didn't sit or walk, but that we just all designed our own tombstone. And to really think, what would we want to write on it? What would we really want to write on it? We wouldn't want to write, you know, here lies a perfect breather. (laughs) (coughs) You know, or or, here lives, uh, you know, here lies uh, the chaotic mind that never figured out how to be clear. But I think it would be—it would be a kind of startling invitation. I think a very important one. It, it would make us per, or encourage us, perhaps, to reflect on how we would really wish, in our hearts, to live our life in this moment. And in this teaching and in this practice, you know, we we begin the practice not only by. Focusing our attention, focusing our hearts on our breathing, on listening, on our bodies, or even the present moment. You know, there's, really it's a sense of, of focusing upon or beginning to connect with a deeper sense of motivation and, and aspiration. And if we ask ourselves what really matters, what is truly important to us, I think the, the answers for most of us are fairly simple. It, it, it's not about having certain experiences that will come and go. It, it's not about the kind of concentration we have. I think most of us come here to really understand what it means to have a compassionate and wise and liberated heart and life. Now, in in the Tibetan tradition, a really very profound weight and significance is is given to this question of of motivation and aspiration. I certainly, when I began to practice, I I was really uh, quite surprised in a way that um, to see that I was beginning with disappointed expectations, disappointed demands even, you know that instead of being taught all this tantric meditation i 'd read about, um, I was you know sent off with this kind of like assignment, um, you know like homework, you know like like go away and 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 reflect upon why you want to do this, and actually, for months, to say it was for months to reflect upon aspiration and motivation. In the Tibetan tradition, these are called, these are some of the preliminary practices that essentially serve to focus our minds and hearts. The Dalai Lama calls these preliminary practices preparing the ground of the mind, preparing the ground of the heart. And then of course, we could ask, well, what are we preparing for? And I think we're preparing to understand what really matters preparing the ground of the heart. So it's inclined towards compassion and liberation. These preliminary practices really began with the reflection upon interconnectedness. And the, the metaphor that was used was to imagine all of the beings in this world, the countless beings in this world, and to imagine that each and every one of them could have been my mother at some point. Now, of course, you know Tibetan culture is a little different than ours. So, you know, the Geshe was really kind of like really surprised when people complained about this practice because, you know, when some said they didn't even like their mothers, you know, like this was <laughs> unheard of, you know. So, you know, it could shift it a little, you know, imagining that everyone, every single living being in this universe could at some point have been your child. Then, really, how would you wish to relate to them and to treat them? And this, this reflection, and I have to confess, you know, that I didn't really understand these preliminary practices for about 20 years after I did them. Um, But I did them anyway, you know, I was a very obedient kind of student, but what I did come to understand that this was really a training in ethics, it was a training in kindness, it was a training in appreciation. One of the preliminary practices was this endless, endless reflection upon karma. to begin to understand that We don't actually live in a random universe where our thoughts and words and acts have no consequence. But to understand that every word and every thought and every act splinters in a thousand, ten thousand ways to impact the world around us. And so everything matters. To understand just that just as we are constantly being informed and shaped by the world around us, so too are we shaping and informing the world we live in in each moment through our thoughts and words and acts. It was certainly not an invitation to become self-conscious or judgmental, but to more and more deeply see ourselves as being conscious participants in the kind of world that we live in. These preliminary practices in many ways were and are an invitation to really expand the heart, to open the heart into the family of beings, to come out in a way of the language of I and mine and to come into the language of we and us. Now, another of these preliminary practices was the reflection upon the preciousness of human life. And the metaphor that is used, and many of you will be familiar with this, is a metaphor of the unsighted turtle. It imagine a great ocean at the bottom of which lives a turtle without sight. A golden ring floats on the surface of the ocean, moved at random by the waves and the currents. The ring has no mind, is not looking for the turtle. The turtle, having no sight, cannot see the ring. The turtle comes to the surface only once in every hundred years. Can you imagine how rare it would be for the turtle to surface anywhere near the golden ring, let alone encircle her head with it? A precious human life is even more rare than this. Now, in this teaching of the preciousness of human life and birth, my understanding is that there are two central themes within it. One is the theme of appreciation, and the other is the theme of urgency. And both are reflections which really prepare the ground of the mind for compassion and awakening. Appreciation. I I feel it's just so so opening and touching to give time each day to this reflection on appreciation. That none of us, of course, could come to be here without the small and the large acts of kindness and care of countless benefactors who have supported us and touched us through our lives from the moment that we were born. Even now, you know, for you to come here, for us to be here, you know how many friends, family, colleagues, have really offered their support in so many different ways to enable this. The gratitude, as Mary Oliver puts it, to be given this mind and heart and these body clothes. Even those people in our past and our present who we surely don't think of as being benefactors, people we may have struggled with or have harmed us and injured us, actually, in very real ways, may play have played their own part in asking us, actually, to find depths of patience and equanimity, forgiveness and generosity, that perhaps in kindlier circumstances in our lives, we would never have been asked to find. Now, our life doesn't always feel very precious. And especially if our life is fraught with worries or loss or grief or burdened by difficulties, sometimes our life just doesn't feel that precious. But my understanding is that our life is, is precious not just because we were born, that our life and all lives are precious because of their potential, because they are pregnant in truth with possibilities. The possibilities of healing suffering, the possibilities of discovering the same, the same freedom and the same compassion the Bodhisattvas and Buddhists who time have discovered. And our life and our time here is really an invitation to get a sense, a feel for the preciousness of this life. And it said, used well, this body is a raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this body anchors us to suffering. Used well, this heart is a raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this heart anchors us to struggle. This heart, this mind, this body does the bidding of both ignorance and wisdom. I think knowing the difference between these two, of using well or unwell, using wisely or unwisely, is actually part of the journey of of focusing our minds and hearts. And I'm sure you can recall, I know I can recall, times when our bodies and our hearts have done the bidding of the unskillful, when we have acted or spoken or thought in ways that have injured or harmed ourselves or others. And I'm sure we can all recall times when our bodies and our minds and our hearts have really been rafts to freedom, rafts of compassion, times when we've loved well, when we've walked and and moved in our life with kindness and, and generosity and forgiveness. And I think all these moments, you know, in a way both suffering and joy, in a way teach us again and again the lessons of what truly matters, if we listen to them well. I'm sure it is clear that our capacity to care and to be neglectful lives side by side, as do our capacity to love and to hate to be fearful or fearless. Our capacity to be focused or distracted really is born of the same mind. And what we start to see moment over, more and more, I think, in the practice is that really what comes into being, what grows and what develops is really what we feed and nurture. Is what we care for. I think our life and everything we experience in it teaches us that the power of, about the power of hatred and love, about the power of what heals and liberates, (coughs) what we feed and nurture more and more, we come to see this is not something predestined. You know, we are not fated to be a certain way. I I really have trouble with this kind of typecasting, you know, where people say, you know, I'm this type of person, you know, I've always been this type of person, you know, I'm I'm an aversive type, or I'm a a greed type, or I'm a deluded type, you know. (laughs) It's like a club, you know, that you have a membership in. (laughs) It's not like that, you know. Moment to moment, the more aware we are, the more you see the choices of the moment, the choices of what you nurture, the choices of what you care for, this is actually what comes into being. This is actually the practice of the moment. You know, sometimes mindfulness is translated as remembering and keeping in mind remembering, not only to be, to be present, but remembering why, why we are present. You know, not not to turn this into some sort of cliche or mantra, you know, just be present as if that's it. It's actually be present in the service of wisdom. In a way, the teaching of the preciousness of human life is a reflection of the freedoms that we are blessed with and actually the blessings of what we are freed from. You know, freedom, in a way we we have the freedom to have the opportunity to practice. We have the freedom to find a path that leads to unshakable freedom. Being here is an incredible expression of those freedoms. You know, traditionally it said, you know, you know, one of the characteristics of a precious human life is that you're not born in a barbaric place or barbaric times. And some of us might kind of like argue with that a little, you know, but not really. Because we have, we have the freedom to make choices. We don't wake up each morning as countless beings and people in this world wake up wondering if we have enough to eat today or enough shelter for those that we love. Our life isn't governed by many, like many in this world, of just simply hoping to survive. I read a, something said by a woman in one of these terrible refugee camps in Darfur. She that each morning she wakes up with two bleak choices. That if she goes out to collect water, she risks being raped or even killed, and then her children would die. And that if she didn't risk going out for water, she risked her children dying of thirst. With the freedom of being born in a way in a way of fortunate place and time, it's a blessing of being able to hear the Dhamma. You know, last uh, last year, or the year before, I went to Cuba with Mary, and I was quite astonished, really, to to really encounter this incredible thirst for the practice and the teaching, and yet this um, it was almost like going somewhere forty years ago. You know, if I I, I one time said something that the Dalai Lama had said, and somebody. And on the retreat said to me, who's the Dalai Lama? <laughs> and yet, in that situation, you know, which in a way we could say, oh, is so cut off, you know, this incredible heart and thirst for the practice where people actually were willing to make remarkable sacrifices to be there. You know, something that so touched me were people on the retreat in Cuba who would saved up out of their rations for months. In order to supplement the the rations of food provided on the retreat i she found that so humbling you know that kind of nobility of spirit the sense of of dedication and and gratitude and you know, being aware, you know, speaking about these situations, you know, it's not, you know, it's not in the service of, oh, yes, we should feel guilty, you know. It, it, it's not like, you know, when you were a child and, you know, you know, my mother used to say to me, look, you, you better finish your dinner. Think of all those people in the world who don't have anything to eat, you know, as if you're kind of like this kid, you know, what am I going to do? Package up my leftovers, you know. It's not in order to make us feel guilty or or ashamed, but in a way to really, I don't know, somehow appreciate the miracle of being able to wake up each morning, the miracle of being here to have a body. And it doesn't have to be a perfect body to practice. It just needs to be well enough to breathe. It's actually all we need. You know, it it just needs to be well enough to to be able to be here, to listen. And isn't it a miracle actually Mm -hmm. that we have the capacity in our lives not to be governed by the craving for power and ambition and prestige, that we can actually see perhaps some of the emptiness of that? Even to be able to let go is a freedom. We have the blessings of being born as women as, as women in a time and place where we can do this. You know, I, I always found it so difficult practicing in Asia where, where, where nuns, you know, really sincere nuns of many years would tell me they were practicing in the hope of being reborn as a man so they could be liberated. And, you know, that, that sense of, you know, that lack of freedom wasn't just external. It was, it was a kind of internal belief system of being inadequate and, and not good enough and not worthy. You know, and I think sometimes, of course, we might see the residues in small and large ways in ourselves of that, that sense maybe of being not good enough or not worthy. But we have the encouragement to really question those belief systems. We have the encouragement to really see the lethalness, the toxicity of those belief systems and bindings. And to have that freedom, you know, we're not just lucky. Lucky as is a word I really don't do. <clears throat> we're fortunate. We're actually fortunate. We're fortunate to have the capacity to begin to turn the tides of ill will and craving in our own hearts. We're fortunate to have the capacity to begin to understand where suffering and anguish arises from and to nurture all that truly matters. You know, in many ways these blessings that are so part of our life, they really speak of our capacity rather than our incapacity of possibilities rather than impossibility. The possibility, really, of embodying compassion of healing suffering. This is actually what makes our life precious. In a way, these blessings ennoble our lives. You know, sometimes I feel like when we practice here, I feel like we practice for all the women who can't. You know, I feel like we practice for all the beings in the world who cannot. Now the second contemplation, and I hope you don't find this grim, but the second <laughs> contemplation which encourages which is follows on the heels of this reflection on the preciousness of human life. And maybe this isn't a surprise, is a reflection upon impermanence. That this life, which is so precious, is also so incredibly fragile. I don't know if any of you have ever been to see the Body Worlds exhibition. Uh, In that exhibition where this German doctor has plastinated all these corpses, you know, so you have all this kind of exhibition of all these corpses, yeah, without skin. But it's so... I was so, uh, I went to it recently and I was just so stunned and astonished to see this. You know, when you see the inside, I mean, it takes body contemplation to a whole new level, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But when you see the inside of a body, you know, and it's so remarkably complex, but so fragile, and just one thing that goes amiss, and this life just ends. That was just such an extraordinary sense of it. Now, of course, in this tradition, we've actually been encouraged to do this kind of contemplation for a very, very long time. Um, This life that's so fragile, we don't know how long it will be. We don't know how it will end. And in truth, this reflection on impermanence is really intended to foster that sense of urgency and commitment to focus on what really matters, and to practice in a way as if our life depends upon it. And in truth it does. Nagarjuna, a great Indian teacher, said, he said, life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the Buddha went on with this. He said, There is no great, greater realization than being aware of the impermanence of our life. That just as the elephant's footprint is the greatest of all animals' footprints, so is the meditation on impermanence the most powerful of all meditations. Now, it is, of course, not just the fact of impermanence that we are encouraged to reflect upon and know, because most of us don't argue with the fact, but to understand the implications of impermanence and to to really allow the implications of impermanence to inform and affect our entire attitude to our life and how we live it to understand the implications of impermanence, and to live in the light of what truly matters, to live wholeheartedly, to live in an undistracted way, to love deeply all that is precious moment to moment, and then to learn to let it go. In a very real way, this entire practice is a training in learning how to die. It is a training in non-clinging. It's a training in non-grasping. And actually, being a training in learning how to die, it is also, in the same way, a training in freedom. Now, the first of the reflections in the teaching in the Reflection on Impermanence is a reflection on on death and dying, not just as a theory, because like impermanence, most of us don't argue with the fact of dying or the fact of death. We see it as a fact, but we don't always see it as part of our own life cycle, do we? You know, and and I think conventionally in our culture, you know. It, It's considered kind of grim and morbid and depressing to reflect upon death. But that's really from the standpoint of clinging and grasping. In truth, it's really a reflection that's so deeply awakening because it really teaches us how to live. And it brings into our life not a sense of haste, but this sense of urgency and passion. I don't know, I'm sure all of us or many of you have experienced it. When there's someone you you really care for and really love dies. It's, even when you know it's coming, it's like really still this incredible sense of surprise. This sense of being also startled into wakefulness. You know, and, and immediately, you know, everything that didn't matter falls away. You know, and in the face of someone we care for who dies, you know, we, we do feel at peace if we have said to them everything that has been important, if we've communicated our love and our care, and we feel deeply regretful if we haven't communicated all that matters. Yet, those moments, those moments when we are startled into wakefulness, sometimes they don't last that long they can subside again and and we can get, you know, again so easily into postponement practice, can't we? You know, tomorrow's surely a better day to be awake, you know. There's got to be a more perfect moment to be present in, really, you know. Um, later, you know, after I've had this neat, delicious daydream, you know, then I'm really going to pay attention, you know. Postponement practice can just just run. Through our lives. There's a Tibetan saying, you know, that if, if you wait to practice until you have the generous benefactor and, you know, good food and a perfect place to live, you will have already fed the demon before you even begin to feed the Dharma. Yeah, I think postponement practice doesn't really work. So what would it mean for us to live in the light of impermanence, in a way to live in the light of our own death? Well, we could be deeply focused. We could be very less forgetful. Everyone and everything around us, we know, is bound to die. It doesn't occur to us to question this, whether it's true or not. It's certain. And our own life only gets shorter and not longer. Patron Rinpoche, he said, death closes in, never pausing for an instant, like the shadow of a mountain at sunset. And yet we tend to treat death like the sound of distant thunder at a picnic. (laughs) And although we know, we know we'll die one day, it doesn't always alter our attitude to life, because one day sounds really abstract, doesn't it? Imagine one day... You know, we think it's surely going to be some other day, not this one. But how would it alter or change our life if we lived in the sense it could be this one? A Tibetan Lama, he he said, if I forget to meditate on death early in the morning, my whole morning's meditation is wasted. (laughs) If I forget to meditate on death at midday, my whole afternoon's meditation becomes incomplete. And if I forget to meditate on death in the evening, I really shouldn't go to bed. (laughs) I think what would our life be like if we could truly feel while sitting or standing or walking or lying down, that this could be our last act, that when we eat or drink or watch the beautiful sunsets, No, this may truly be the only moment that this is possible. To breathe one one breath without counting on another breath to follow. Would we not remember then what really matters? To love, to be present, to live wholeheartedly, to live with appreciation and gratitude, urgency, and to explore really what it means to liberate this moment. You know, and I, I think this is so... So helpful, you know, because we use these terms, liberation and freedom, and we tend to think of these kind of, you know, like these, these grand destinations, you know, these grandiose ideals. And it's just so important to bring these terms into the present. You know, what does it mean just to liberate this moment? What does it mean to free this moment from suffering, from struggle, from conflict? Does it mean to be alive in this moment? Perhaps if we couldn't do this, you know, instead of making us more burdened or heavy, actually, we do become a little bit less burdened. You know, our regrets and guilts and remorse that we carry about the past, maybe we carry them just a little more lightly. Our Our dreams, our fantasies about the future, Perhaps we may see that it's it's not really worthwhile getting that entangled in what is yet to come. You know, all our struggles to get one thing or to get rid of another thing, maybe we see them just a little bit more transparent. And we come home what truly matters. The love, the compassion, the freedom we can nurture in this moment, as if it's the only moment that was possible. I love this teaching by Alami. It says, think about death and impermanence for a long time. Once you're certain you're going to die, you will no longer find it hard to put aside harmful action, nor difficult to do what is wise and loving. After that, meditate for a long time on love and compassion. And once love fills your heart, you will no longer find it hard to act for the benefit of others. Then meditate for a long time on emptiness. And once you fully understand emptiness, the natural state, you will no longer find it hard to dispel all your delusions. This human life is made so precious by our dedication to all that matters. Our willingness to to let go of the confusions that can so (coughs) darken our hearts, to let go of everything that divides us from another, that keeps us locked into struggle. And this human life is really made precious by our willingness moment to moment to really dedicate ourselves to healing suffering, to the happiness of all beings, including ourselves. This is what the Buddha called a noble life. A life that is ennobled, ennobled by understanding, by love and by compassion. And this truly is simply our life of the moment the life that is possible for us. If we take just a moment, quietly together... May all beings be free from struggle. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings live in compassionate and free heart.